Well, that great philosopher, Woody Allen, uh, allegedly said once, I don't believe in an afterlife, although I am bringing a change of underwear. (laughs) Uh, Woody Allen's statement there reflects a certain ambivalence, a a certain level of uncertainty as to whether, in fact, there is an afterlife or not. What happens when you die? Uh, At Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the time when all believers will be resurrected. But the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't returned yet. What happens in the meantime? What are people who have died doing right now? Are they alive? Are they asleep? Where are they? And this is some of what we're going to talk about today. Um, So let's look at our passage, uh, chapter 5. Just verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8. And it's kind of in the middle of an argument, but we're just going to focus on these verses. And so it'll sound, you know, as we start, it says, so it's a conclusion drawn from the previous verses, but we're just focusing on 6 through 8, so that's all we're going to read. So, the Apostle Paul says, so we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. So what I want to do is I want to make three observations from this passage. And then uh, I want to answer or look at a couple questions, address a couple questions that might arise as a result of this passage. The first observation is this. In this life we are living now, we are away from the Lord. But when we leave this body, we will be with the Lord. Okay. In this life we are living now, we are away from the Lord, but when we leave this body, or and by leaving this body, it's referenced specifically to death, we will be with the Lord. This, is not, this does not mean that we don't have a relationship with the Lord now, or that he is not with us here now in one way or another. He is with us by his spirit dwelling within us. Of course, we do have a relationship with him, but the relationship we have with him now isn't the same as it's going to be when we are with him. Sarah and I had a great relationship with one another before we got married, when we were dating. We still have a great relationship. (laughs) That didn't sound good. Okay, we had a great relationship when we were dating, and we have a great relationship now uh, that we are married. The relationships at both stages we're good, but one was far better than the other. And, and that's the current one, in case there's a question. That's the relationship when we're married. It was good when we had separate homes, but when we, are, when we have the same home, the relationship is much better. And that's the same it is with the Lord. We have separate homes, if you will, using the, the, the language of Second Corinthians 5, uh, 6 through 8. We, our home, so to speak, is here, and, our, and Christ's home is there. But when we share the same home, when we go home to be with the Lord, the relationship will be even better, far better. But the primary point of this observation here is when you die, you immediately go to be with the Lord. This past week, um, a professor of mine from the Bible College, a professor of some of you, some of you had him as well, Wes Gehrig, uh, from Fort Wayne Bible College years ago, passed away. He was a believer. What happened? He went immediately into the presence of the Lord. And we're going to talk about some of what that means in a few minutes. But let's go on to the second observation. That's this. The normal Christian prefers to be with the Lord over continuing on in this earthly life. The normal Christian 
prefers to be with the Lord over continuing on in this earthly life. Verse 8 uh, says, We are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Um, that word satisfied in the home and Christian, uh, it's, not, it's not quite strong enough for the Greek word that is there. Uh, other translations, I think, uh, represent the strength of that verb a little bit better. Let me just give you a sample. The ESV says, we would rather be. It's not just a mere, I'm satisfied. It's, it's, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or the NIV, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. NASB, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. One more, the CSB, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's not just a matter of being satisfied. It's a matter of, this is our preference. This is our preference. This is what we'd, we'd rather do. We'd, we'd rather be out of this life, out of this body, and at home with the Lord. And by the way, this in no way sanctions suicide. Someone might say, well, if being with the Lord is preferable, why don't we just go see him now? Uh, murder is sin, and that includes self-murder. Uh, just because it's preferable to be with the Lord doesn't mean we are sanctioned to hasten our own meeting with him. God is sovereign over matters of life and death. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 7 is not an admonition to walk by faith instead of by sight. It's a frank statement of reality. That is the reality. We are walking by faith and not by sight. And perhaps perhaps there's a, a wistful tone about this. We walk by faith, not by sight. And how we long for that time when we will no longer walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. We walk by faith now because we do not physically see Jesus. First Peter talks about this. Peter says to believers, you love him, although you have not seen him. You love him, although you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. The reality for the believer is that we walk by faith. We are walking by faith. We are not walking by sight because we don't physically see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. I've often heard this verse used in this way. You need to stop living by sight, and you need to start living by faith. Um, but that's not, that's not what Paul's saying we should do. In fact, um, Paul's, uh, Paul's not saying we should do that. Paul is saying that that is what we are doing as Christians. He says we are looking forward to the time when we no longer have to live by faith because we will be living by sight. First John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him. A time is coming when we will live by sight. We will see the Lord Jesus. The third observation is this. What is to come is better. What is to come is better. Why do we prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord? Why do we anticipate moving on from this life into the presence of the Lord? Because to be at home with the Lord is to truly be at home. Because what is to come is so much better than what we have here. And that's the consistent testimony of God's word. There are Christians who are skeptical about this, though they might not admit it. This is especially true of believers who have it pretty good in this life. Um, perhaps, some of you, perhaps some of you fall into this category. You know the Bible promises a better future, um, but there's this doubt in the back of your mind. Maybe because your life is pretty comfortable right now. And sure, you could list a lot of things that are wrong with your life right now, but overall, 
it's a pretty decent life. And the fear, and, and there's a fear of going on to something that may not be as exciting. And that's another reason for the doubt. There might be this doubt in the back of your mind that heaven's going to be really as exciting as they say it is. Uh, maybe you have this vision of heaven being just a, uh, a hymn sing for eternity. We, we sing through the hymnal, and then when we're done, we turn back to the beginning and sing through the hymnal again, and we do nothing else. I'm not disparaging hymns. <laughs> but maybe you have, an, you have this conception in your mind that heaven is going to be um, kind of boring. Whatever your doubts might be about the superiority of the next life over this life, if you have those doubts, they're misleading you as to the real nature of what heaven is going to be like. Um, let me assure you that your worst day in heaven will be far, far better than the best day you've ever experienced in this life. And it's really inappropriate to talk about your worst day in heaven. So those are just uh, three quick observations. So, so this passage tells us that death brings us into the presence of the Lord. Now let's address two questions related to that truth. One question is, what will it be like? What exactly happens at death? And the second question is, how should that truth, the fact that we will be ushered into the presence of the Lord when we die, how should that affect us now? So the first question, what will that be like? What, what happens at death? Erwin Lutzer, a pastor, uh, entitled one of his books, One Minute After You Die. One Minute After You Die. So what happens one minute after you die? Physical death, according to the Bible, is the separation of the soul from the body. The soul leaves the body. When you die, your soul exits from the body. Your body is left behind to be buried, but you do not cease to exist. You continue to exist as a person with regards to your soul. If you are a believer, what happens? You go immediately into the presence of the Lord. You go immediately into the presence of the Lord. That is, you are literally with the Lord. You are in his presence. It's not just a way of speaking. It is a way of speaking, but it's a literal way of speaking. You are in the presence of the Lord. Now, uh, and, and in relationship with him. I, I want to be clear about something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but seems to be a clear teaching of Scripture. There is what Bible teachers refer to as the intermediate state. The intermediate state. The final state of things, as the Bible teaches, will be the new heavens and the new earth. But the new heavens and the new earth don't exist yet. The resurrection hasn't happened yet um, either. When all the believing dead are raised and get their resurrection bodies, that is still future. That is still future. So what's going on with believers who have died? It's referred to as the intermediate state. It's kind of a sterile term. But it's, it's, a, it's a term to try to describe what the Bible teaches. So what's going on now with the believers who have died? Are they in heaven? Yes, we call it heaven, but it's not the final heaven, if you will. It's not the final heavens and the earth. The Bible sometimes referred to where believers are now as paradise. Um, Jesus calls it paradise. For instance, when he was on the cross, uh, the, the two, uh, the two um, criminals crucified on either side of him, uh, one of them says, remember me when you come into his kingdom. Uh, yeah, it's right there. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Paul referred to it this way. He, uh, Paul says, he knew a man that was caught up into paradise where he heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. 
John referred to it. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Paradise is where Christ is now. It's where he manifests his presence and his glory. Is it a glorious place? Yes, absolutely. Because the Lord Jesus is there, the angels are there, and all those who have died in Christ in there are there. It's a place of peace and rest. It's a place of relationships and joy. Think of any place now on earth that you might refer to as paradise. Okay? Think of some place now that you think is paradise. Maybe Hawaii. Maybe Ossian. I don't know. Uh, wherever you think of as paradise, okay, wherever that place is, it doesn't deserve the term in connection with the true paradise where Christ is at and where all the dead in Christ are currently with him. It's also a place of anticipation. It's a place of anticipation where believers are looking forward to the return of Christ to earth. And they're looking forward to the resurrection when they'll receive the permanent, their permanent glorified resurrection bodies. And they're looking forward to the consummation of history and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Either way, they are fully conscious. Those believers who are with Christ now, who have died and have gone to be with Christ, they are fully conscious and active and interacting with the Lord and with, the, and with their fellow saints. That much is clear from Scripture. When you die, you retain full consciousness. This is not soul sleep. It's not soul sleep. Um, Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses teach a doctrine called soul sleep, where they say that when believers die now, the soul sleeps between death and resurrection. The soul isn't conscious or awake during this time. This, tar- the, this, this doctrine is partially based on the fact that sometimes the Bible refers to those who have died as those who have fallen asleep. But this is just a metaphorical way of the scriptures speaking about death because when a person dies, their body looks at peace like they're sleeping. But that's their body, not their soul. Other passages, such as ones we've already looked at, indicate that when we die, we are fully conscious and ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Also, when you die, you will, be, you will be done with sin and made morally perfect. When you die, you will be done with sin and made morally perfect. Hebrews chapter 12. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city. Here the writer is talking about believers who gather in worship. And when we gather in worship, he says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, and here's why I quoted that whole passage right now, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. The spirits of righteous people made perfect. Revelation 14:13 also implies moral perfection once a believer dies. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the Spirit, let them rest from their labors, for their works follow them. The rest includes rest from sin. They are finally done with sin. One Bible teacher notes, heaven is fully pure and free from all tarnish and sin. And therefore, when God takes us to heaven, he makes us fit for the experience of it by making our hearts perfect in holiness. This accords with his purpose to make us completely 
like Jesus Christ. Let me be clear about something else, too. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory. With the possible exception of the DMV in Illinois. I've been there, and that might be, that might qualify. But other than that, Purgatory is a Roman Catholic doc, is a Roman Catholic teaching which teaches that the souls of most believers first go to purgatory, a place of suffering until their sins are purged away. Why? Because they haven't suffered enough for their sins yet. But we reject the doctrine of purgatory for a few reasons. First of all, the primary basis for purgatory in Roman Catholic teaching is church tradition. They elevate church tradition on a par or even above what Scripture says. We as Protestants elevate the Scripture as our primary authority. Also, They do use some Scriptures, but the primary Scripture they use is found in the Apocrypha, in the book of Second Maccabees. Um, the Apocrypha is a book that is not, our, our collection of books that was not recognized by Jesus as Scripture in his day. Further, the actual scriptures that they use from the New Testament, and there are two or three of them, um, to support purgatory are, are way misinterpreted. Also, the doctrine of purgatory is an insult to Christ's payment for sins on the cross. It's kind of like a works righteousness. I mean, what, what did Christ die for? He died to pay for our sins. And then you're saying, I've got to pay for my sins for a while too because Christ's payment wasn't sufficient? Um, it, it goes right against Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. There is nothing you do to contribute to your salvation. And finally, the teaching of purgatory is proved wrong by verses we've already looked at. Like when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in purgatory. No. Today you will be with me in paradise. And if anyone needed to go to purgatory... It might have been the thief on the cross. But no, he, that day he was in paradise with Christ. So there's, there's no such thing as purgatory. When you die and go into the presence of the Lord by God's action because of your faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, you will be done with sin for good and will be made morally perfect. And someone asked the question, what if I sin in heaven? Um, you won't. You won't. You will not. You will not sin in heaven. Um, let me, let me show you some verses. Colossians one, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Here's the intention to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. That's God's intention. He intends to, to present you as holy, faultless and blameless. If God intends to do it, do you think he's going to succeed? Yes. He's going to succeed. He's going to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless. Here's a promise. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8:29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Here is God's purpose for us to conform us completely to the image of Jesus Christ. And this has special reference to the moral character of Jesus Christ. At death, as a believer in Christ, you will be morally perfected. As a believer, you are in the process of leaving sin behind, and this is a process that will be completed when you stand face-to-face with Jesus Christ. 
As Pastor Randy Alcorn puts it in his book on heaven, you won't sin in heaven for the same reasons that God doesn't sin. Because you can't. You can't. God, you know, we talk about the omnipotence of God and there's nothing that God can't do. Well, there are some things the scripture is clear that God can't do. For one thing, he can't violate his own character. He can't sin. It is impossible for God to lie, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible for God to sin. And when you get to heaven, it will be impossible for you to sin as well because it will not be in your nature. Will you still have free will? Yes, but I won't be able to sin, so how's that free will? Your inability to sin doesn't violate your free will. There's lots of things that you can't do right now, and it doesn't violate your free will. You can't fly on your own by flapping your arms. Do you still have free will? You do. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Um, You can't hold your breath for an hour. Do you still have free will? You do. You can't choose to be a rabbit or a flower right now, all right? But you still have free will. You can't bring Leonardo da Vinci back from the dead. You can't bring Abraham Lincoln back from the dead. You can't bring Elvis Presley back from the dead, if he is actually dead. Yeah, right. (laughs) But you still have free will, right? In heaven, you won't be able to sin, but you still have free will. That's the simple reality of your nature. Quoting Randy Alcorn again, the new nature that will be ours in heaven, the righteousness of Christ, is a nature that cannot sin any more than a diamond can be soft or blue can be red. God cannot sin, yet no being has greater free choice than God does. Theologian Paul Helm writes, the freedom of heaven then is the freedom from sin. Not that the believer just happens to be free from sin, but that he is so constituted or reconstituted that he cannot sin. He doesn't want to sin, and he does not want to want to sin. That's an amazing truth. That's one of the things I look forward to about heaven. Not struggling with temptation. Not struggling with sin anymore. It won't even be a part of me. I won't even desire it. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Think about it this way. I'm guessing that there are some sins right now that there is no way you would commit. You're, sure, you're tempted by some sins, but there are some sins right now you will never be tempted by. Okay? When you get to heaven, that's the way it's going to be with all sins. Okay, The way you feel about those sins that totally disgust you right now, like, for instance, I'm guessing that there are some of you in here that would never be tempted to kill a little puppy. Okay, Just to be graphic. You're, you'd never be tempted to kill a little puppy or a little kitten. All right? That's just, ah, oh, it's, it's reprehensible to you. That's the way you're going to feel about all sins when you get to heaven. They will be completely reprehensible to you. When you die, you will go into, the, into heaven, into the presence of Jesus, and you will be made perfect. And at that point, the way you feel right now about those sins is the way you feel about all sins. I've camped out on this point a little bit. <laughs> I know that. But it's because I've gotten questions and comments along these lines, people concerned about the fact, you know, what, what if I sin in heaven? Then do, am, I out, am, I, am I booted out of heaven into hell? You won't. You won't sin in heaven, okay? It's promised. You've got to get to heaven first, and that's through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But once you're there, you're there for good. Corliss Hess passed away a couple months ago. Most of you knew Corliss, loved Corliss. Corliss was a believer. Actually, he still is a believer. Um, so where is Corliss? Corliss is in heaven, paradise. He's in the presence of Jesus. He is morally perfect. 
He has talked with the Lord. He is hanging out with other believers. He is talking with those whom he know, those believers whom he knew that have gone on to be with heaven. Maybe he's having a conversation with Walt Pfluger. Maybe he's talked with Lily Bodine already. Um, that's, that's where Corliss is at. Um, he has full joy and he is fully at peace. He has, he has no troubling thoughts or temptations. He is not hampered by anxiety or pain or poor health or sin. He is fully conscious. He is fully alive. In fact, he's more alive than he's ever been. Some of you know what Dwight L. Moody once said. Dwight L. Moody once said, one day you, one day soon you will hear that I am dead. Don't believe it. I will then be alive as never before. And that's what happens when believers pass on into death. Death is a doorway into far greater life. The second question then that we want to, I want to ask in terms of this uh, passage is, how should this affect you now? How should the reality that you're going to be in the presence of Christ once you leave this body, how should that affect you now? Well, first of all, you need not fear death. You need not fear death. Second Corinthians 5.8, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Death has been transformed by the Lord Jesus from a sentence to eternal suffering into a doorway, a doorway into greater life. Look at Philippians 1. Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To death is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ died in order to free us from the slavery of being afraid of death, of fearing death. Jesus died to set us free from the fear of death, according to Hebrews 2.15. Second, your grief for believers who die should be different than your grief for unbelievers who die. Why? Because we know that believers who die are experiencing great joy. They are in the presence of the Lord. They are living now by sight while we still live by faith. They are free from the ravages of sin and disease and death. They are free from the sinfulness of others. They are free from the very presence of sin in their own being. They are more alive than they've ever been. Look at Psalm 1611, which I think is a picture of heaven. You have made, you have made to me, you have made known to me. That's what it should be. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Those in heaven are experiencing life, fullness of joy, eternal pleasures at God's right hand in his presence. So when a Christian loved one dies, we grieve and mourn and are sad. Why? Because, because we miss them. And our grief over losing them can be powerful and intense, depending on how close you were to them. And there's no question about that. And it's not wrong to grieve for believers who have gone on. They were a part of our life. And so we grieve. We miss them. They're absent from us. But we shouldn't grieve in, in the same, we shouldn't grieve for them in the same way we grieve for those who don't know Christ. Because we know that they're in a better place. Because we know that we're, if you're a believer, you're going to see them again soon. Soon be in relative term. In, in ter- term, in terms of eternity, it is soon. 
even if it be 50 years. But um, the reality is <clears throat> most believers, once they get to heaven, okay, probably all, they don't want to come back. <laughs> there, things over there pretty darn good. I often wonder how Lazarus felt when he had to come back. <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so our grief for our loved ones who have died in Christ, powerful though it may be, is tempered by the knowledge that they are with the Lord in paradise and also by the fact that as believers ourselves, we'll, we'll see them again. Another application or thought is this. Your hope should be set on heaven. Your hope now should be set on heaven, not on a good life here on earth. Your hope should be on heaven, not on a good life here on earth. Going back to our text, Paul indicates that we prefer to be away from the Lord. I'm sorry, away from the body and at home with the Lord. Why is he saying that? Well, keep in mind this letter was written to the Corinthians first. What was the church of Corinth like? The church of Corinth was a lot like America in a way. Uh, it was a prosperous city and um, the, the, the culture there was focused very much on the good life. And that seeped into the church, and the church uh, was fascinated with the earthly life. Their, their minds were very earthly-minded. They were very worldly in that sense. They were very focused on what was going on in life. They could achieve. Um, they were fascinated by athletic. Athlete, there was uh, athletic competition, and Paul uses athletic comparisons in, in First Second Corinthians. They were um, they so they were fascinated by physical abilities. They were fascinated by intellectual abilities. They loved wisdom and so forth. Um, and there's this notion, especially in Second Corinthians, that they had a sort of health and wealth kind of view of what life should be like, this earthly life should be. Um, in fact, they, they, uh, they had issues with Paul because he suffered so much. If Saul suffered so much, was he really that great of an apostle? And Paul defends that by saying, in my weakness, God is made strong. But they had this, they were very much focused on this life as opposed to the next life. So part of why Paul is writing this in Second Corinthians 5 is to get their focus off of this world and onto the next. Off of this life and onto the next. Sounds a lot like our culture. It sounds like the American church sometimes. Does it also sound like you? Where is your ultimate hope? Are your eyes fixed on heaven or are they fixed on now? We can easily be preoccupied with making ourselves a good life in this life so that the hope of heaven doesn't seem that exciting to us. But this, this life is not your final reality. This was the problem with the rich man that Jesus told the story about who tore down his barns to build bigger barns. And he died prematurely and found out that because of his focus on this life, he had not been rich toward God. That's the problem with being focused on this life is that we are not rich toward God. We are not doing all that we could in service to one another and to God. Let me just share with you a few verses and ask if these describe you or not. It's just personal evaluation. I want you to raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. I just want you to, you know, evaluate. Does this reflect who you are or not or to what degree? Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, where are you storing up treasure? Primarily here, primarily in the next life. Where is your treasure and where is your heart? Uh, next one is from Philippians 3. 
For I've often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a believer, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's, that's a non-negotiable. Your citizenship is in heaven. My question is about the first part there. Are you focused on earthly things or are you focused on the place where your citizenship is at? Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Where, where is your mindset? You have a heavenly mindset or an earthly mindset? This one always challenges me. You sympathized. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrew Christians, and um, he's writing them because they are falling away a little bit. Um, they are concerned. They, they have earthly security questions about their own security. And he, he's reminding them of their past. You sympathize. You want to sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Wow. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Are you to the point where if someone came and confiscated your property, if the government stepped in and confiscated your property for whatever reason, doesn't happen much here, does it? <laughs> does in other countries. Are you to the point where ah, I joyfully accept it because I know I have better and lasting possessions? This is the, this is kind of the mindset that the scriptures are trying to inculcate in us. So those are three, three ways that this should affect us. I just want to point out one more real quick, and I'm not going to make any comment on it. Okay, I'll make very little comment. Look at verses 9 and 10, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Here's another implication of the fact that we will go to be at home with the Lord. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, we are at home, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. So another implication of the fact that we are going home to be with the Lord is that now we live to please him. Now we live to please him. And I think we'll probably be talking about that, those two verses next week, maybe. Uh, Woody Allen once said something else funny. Um, he said, "Is well, I don't know if it's funny. He says, it is impossible to experience one's own death objectively and still carry a tune. It's impossible to experience one's own death objectively and still carry a tune. Uh, That's true of many of those who don't know Christ. Everything we've said about dying in heaven does not apply to you if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if you haven't received him into your life, if you aren't walking with him. In the next life the one that literally lasts forever, there are two destinations. We've only talked about one of them today. But the Bible says there is two. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Everyone ends up in either heaven or in hell. And it all hinges on whether you are living a life of faith in Christ. It's whether you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or not, whether your faith is in him. And death is literally the deadline. That is the deadline. After that, The choice is made. And if you choose not to make a choice, that's a choice against Christ. That's a choice against not having faith in Christ. 
If you do not serve Jesus, I would encourage you, I would urge you to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus and to do it soon for your own sake. And if you have questions about Christ and if you have questions about the afterlife and the decision that's involved, I'd be happy to talk with you. I'd be happy to talk with you. And there'd be others in the church who be happy to talk with you as well. But back to what Woody Allen said, it's impossible to experience one's own death objectively and still carry a tune. That's true of those who don't know Christ, but, but that is not true of the Christian. It's not true of the Christian. Heaven is so wonderful that we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And why is this even possible? Why is it even possible that we would have heaven? It's because of the love of God. God is love, and God loves you. He loves you, and he has provided a way out of the just punishment and judgment that you deserve because of your sins. He has provided a way out through his son, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's because of God's love that we're even talking about the possibility of going to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity.